Please stand for the reading of the word. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Again, we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we're into the Beatitudes. The second one is our focus today, but here entirely now the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before them. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. A couple of points we've tried to make so far. Number one is that these beatitudes that Jesus teaches, he's teaching to his disciples on the mountain. Great crowds have followed and no doubt great crowds audited this sermon. We have at the beginning of it the beatitudes. They are based upon the Old Testament beatitude and Jesus is pronouncing a blessing, a blessedness upon those who qualify at certain points, and we delineate those points. He's promising them that they will be a part of the kingdom. He told Nicodemus, you couldn't even see the kingdom without being born again. So the Lord is speaking to disciples. Are you one of his disciples? It means a learner, a follower. He's speaking to people who are born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God? Have you found that moment in your life when the Spirit of God calls you from death to life? And just like Lazarus said, the Lord said to Lazarus, dead in a tomb, come forth. Have you heard the voice of the Lord saying to you, dead in trespasses and sins, come forth? He's also talking about here the kingdom of God, which we have tried to emphasize has an embodiment in the king itself. It's the righteous rule of God wherever and whenever generally, but it begins to focus in the person of Christ and begins in his earthly ministry as he comes incarnate to his people and begins to preach and to teach and then ultimately to suffer, to die for them and to be raised again in order for him to become that new, that second Adam in whom as in Adam all died, but in Christ all can be made alive. He's come to bring eternal life. In fact, he's come to bring not only eternal life, but an eternal state, a new heaven and a new earth. And when he's raised from the dead, he's that first fruits of that great harvest. He is the one walking 
with his disciples on the shores of Galilee and teaching them in the upper room and all else just before he ascended, he's teaching them about that coming kingdom, that pleasure that is beyond description when righteousness rules and when the earth is made new and when only the people in it are the souls of those who have lived and died for Christ. It's important to contextualize, and I've tried to give a little context as we go, not too much at one time, but I want to emphasize a couple of things I've mentioned uh, in the last couple of weeks, and that's to give some context to the Sermon on the Mount. And the best context to give it is uh, we read some of it as we approached it there in Matthew chapter 4 and going into chapter 5, but we need to turn back to Luke chapter 4 to really get the context of what Jesus is driving at in its entirety in the Sermon on the Mount. Not only the Beatitudes, but also the other teaching that he has there. And this happens very early in the ministry of Christ as he's become uh, launching out into his, his teaching ministry. He's been uh, uh, preaching and healing and teaching in the synagogue and being uh, readily available to his people there in the Galilean region, the northern region. They call this the greater Galilean ministry of Christ, the first approximate year of his earthly ministry. And uh, something Luke tells us that Matthew doesn't that helps us with our context. He says, and Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And this is interesting to me. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Jesus didn't get to pick his text. Oh, well, maybe in the providence and sovereignty of God he did. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then there's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now we'll stop there. This is a magnificent story because the very next line says, All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. But as he continued to teach and preach there in the synagogue that afternoon, and when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they should throw him down the cliff. The sermon started out pretty good that Sabbath morning, but look where it went. Why did it go that way? That's because Jesus began very clearly, plainly, unambiguously to set forth his Messiahship he began to claim for himself that special anointing, that power, even that deity and dignity that comes with being the very Son of God. He had come down from heaven. He had come on earth on a mission. 
And as he begins to describe that and set that forth and uses his background, the scriptures of the Old Testament, the people began to really understand what he was saying and what he was claiming. And they were not buying into it because their assessment was, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? He was just a homeboy. He was just somebody in their midst. He was somebody that they had known since his childhood. He was an assistant to his father in the carpenter shop. He was just Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, he was the Son of God. And it was this, this impact moment when the kingdom of God began to break into history and into the world. And Jesus began to make clear his claims. We need to realize that as to who Christ is and what he has done for us and what he is doing for us in every way. Uh, it is, it's a remarkable thing. One great New Testament scholar that is, has notoriety of, lately, of late um, says that was the whole emphasis of Christ was to describe and to inaugurate and to set forth and to accomplish and to lead and to be victorious and to fight the battles of a king. And his whole mission was kingdom of God work. And that's, that's I think, sums it up. We, we, we sometimes miss that when we fail to think about the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is doing. And what he's doing is he's using the Old Testament descriptions of the, the people that were so pathetic and beat down and afflicted and abused and oppressed by everyone you can possibly imagine of the foreign powers for hundreds of years. And what was worse in Jesus' day, the chief oppressor to the people of God were the, the, the temple authorities, the high priestly party and those people that ruled over them in, as vice regents of Rome ruling over God's people there in Judea. And Jesus came and he was talking about a different world order. He was talking about an eternal condition. And that's just hard for those of us who are earthbound. We are, we are too terrestrial to be celestial. We're too much bound to the earth to think much about heaven and the eternal state and things beyond. So if we're not able to do anything else in this series of sermons, which is going to last all year, and I think looking at the schedule it might even go into next year, I think we're going to have to sort of come to terms with something. There's a kingdom, it's not of this world. There's a kingdom that is among us. There's a kingdom that is within us. There's a kingdom in which we enter in. We enter in by faith. We enter in as we hear an invitation. And the invitation, the, the good news of the gospel, goes to those that need to hear it. The whole have no need of a physician. But the sick and the afflicted and the wounded and the downtrodden and the sufferers, they have all sorts of need of a physician and a savior. And I'm going to read the larger passage now from Isaiah, the passage Jesus was quoting. And I'm going to go a little further into the passage than Jesus. He stopped at a key point. He said, I have come to, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of the Jubilee. In other words, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life. He said, I have not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Christ may have life. 
So the good news is a message of life. It's a message of hope. But it's given to the poor. The poor in spirit. Those that mourn. Those that meek. Or that are meek. Those that, that hunger and thirst. Those that are persecuted. Those that are reviled. Those that are mistreated in every way. Spoken evil of. That's a pretty pathetic lot, actually. When the Lord said... Uh, in his great promise to uh, his people back there, he says, um, when they went into captivity and then they returned, he says, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. That's interesting. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouths a deceitful tongue in other words the people Christ comes to call into his kingdom are the people that have deep deep needs in their life they have an insufficiency they have a spiritual paucity a poverty and they recognize it and they are humble before the Lord if there's any group of people the Lord just doesn't seem to favor it's the haughty the proud, the self-righteous, the self-indulgent, the upright, those that tend to want to be lords instead of to be servants. And so this is the character of those that the Lord promises. He says, I will gather you together. I will bring you in at the time when I gather together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. And it's in that key moment I'm reading out of Zephaniah, by the way, chapter 3. It's in that moment where the Lord says, When I restore your fortunes, says the Lord. The restoration of fortunes is a phrase that's used in several times in the Old Testament across several books. And what it's talking about is when God finally takes this total mess that is the fallen, groaning, moaning created order and this group of people that have been called out of all of that but left in the world and still grown within their own souls, waiting the redemption of the body and are longing, just like the soul was warped in the fall, so was the very created order. Do you ever think about that? We live in a world that has been the result of the fall. Just a little illustration of that is uh, when I travel around the country, I see some beautiful things. For example, the Grand Canyon. And I've been to the Grand Canyon about three times in my life. And I look out over there and, and I see this enormous canyon. Well, the, the guides around there and all the little things you'll read will talk all about how the billions of years it took for the Colorado River to carve that canyon out of the desert rock. And how it used to be underwater completely. And I'm, oh, wait a minute. I know where it says in the Bible it was underwater. That was the great Genesis flood. Actually, that canyon might have been carved out in about two hours on a Tuesday afternoon by the deluge with the hydraulic power described in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Just an alternative theory. You see the beautiful Rocky Mountains and you think, isn't that lovely? And look at the, the great heights and then the, the rock on the top and all of the thing. You take a little trip up through there and see this marvelous display. You know what you're looking at? If you go out there to the San Rafael Rise or the swell there in Utah and see that looks like a giant floodplain, you know what you're looking at? You're looking at the remnants. 
You're looking at what's left over. You're looking at the, at the scene of destruction that came upon the earth when God judged it by water. All that beauty you see in nature is not what God created. It's what resulted after God judged. Imagine what the earth will look like when it's a new creation. When we see all these marvelous things, you know, the canyons and the mountains and all of the rough terrain and all this, it has a beauty of its own, but it's really just the ruins of what God had done originally. If you can imagine God doing a work in the groaning and waiting and longing creation that Paul talks about in Romans 8, if you can imagine us waiting on that and our souls are in the same shape, we still are marred by sin. We still suffer affliction. We still suffer all of the, the ailments that come from everybody else. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you are immune to the COVID virus or anything else that befalls this world. We suffer. And we need the hope of salvation that comes that if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. So that's really what Christ is doing. He's talking about the new wine and the new wineskins. He's talking about the new day. And the whole Testament talks constantly about that. Now, here are the passages that I referenced a moment ago. Uh, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. In the language here, that word is not the poor that we defined and talked about last week but it is more of the idea of those that are afflicted. An affliction is something that can be defined in many ways. It can be a physical affliction, a financial affliction, an emotional affliction. It can be a social affliction. There can be any way in which you are afflicted. Your body is in, and soul and your being is somehow vexed and somehow harmed and somehow pushed into pain and perhaps even a gross inconvenience. And that's a horrible thing, and we pray for relief. But what does David say about our affliction? It was good for me that I was afflicted. Because all those afflictions that come, whatever form they may take, do something to chasten and to purify and to polish and to strengthen and to temper the soul that God is working on to bring us to that state of glory one day. So the good news is to those that are afflicted that there is relief. Specifically today, we talk about those who mourn, they'll be comforted. To have good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's jubilee. And that's where the Lord stops right there. He stopped in the middle of the verse. I mean, in the middle of the sentence. Let's pick up the conjunction. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Why is there an admixture of the notion of vengeance of God along with comfort? That's because the thing that afflicts us is sin. Most of all, that's our primary malady. And we suffer some things. We suffer a condemnation. 
Christ came to pay a penalty and to remove that condemnation. We, we suffer a blame and a shame. Christ came to restore the gladness to our face and to lift the burden and cloud of shame from our lives. We, we're alienated from God. Christ came and died a death in such a way that we're now reconciled to God. We, we, our malady, our affliction in sin is, is such that we have, have, have seen the, 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 the disfavor of the Lord, the frowning face of holy God looking upon our lives. And yet through the death of Christ, there's an appeasement. There's an assuasion of that anger. And that wrath has been propitiated. And we come with, with vexation of body, with diseases and with all kinds of afflictions and deformities and incapacities. And we look and see that Christ has come to restore the whole person. And so that's what we're looking for in our salvation. That's the expectation of what Christ will do. And so here he says, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. He's come to turn our weeping into gladness. Over in uh, the book of Luke, uh, over there where Jesus gives, uh, a, and Luke records a version of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes there in, uh, in chapter 6. When he gets to this, he says, woe. He, he takes the blessings and turns them into woes, turns them into curses. He says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The frivolity and the joy and the shallowness and, and the pleasures of sin are for now. The laughing, the taking lightly of spiritual matters, the disposition of carelessness and, and, and lack of, of, of concern for our souls puts us into a bad position. We're enjoying a certain felicity now, a certain joy and happiness and feel goodness and that's really what the gospel I hear preached all the time you can be the best version of yourself you know uh, the best have your best life now uh, I'm okay you're okay those are the versions of the gospel that I've heard preached on the airwaves most of my adult life over the years and they're they're preaching a blessedness and a felicity and a laughing now a lightheartedness, an ease now. But then those are the people that will face the vengeance of the Lord, the wrath of God. The right order is have the suffering now, the mourning now, the grieving now, the sorrow. When Jesus came with all the splendors of heaven and the joy and the praise, the praise that was given to the Lord before he came to earth, I don't think lacked anything concerning the difference we'd see in the praise he gets, you know, in the book of Revelation after the lamb has taken away the sins of the world. He, he left all of that, the joys of heaven, to come and be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so the woe, the blessing is turned to woe. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall, shall mourn and weep. And then lastly, I want to just uh, touch on one other 
passage of scripture and it's over from that passage in uh, um, Isaiah chapter 61 and it's um, a passage that talks about the, the good things that are to come and it's in uh, if I can find it here yeah this is the one, this is Isaiah 66, the very last when he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth and all the rest. He says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the character the Lord is looking for in his people. Find these checklists in the Bible. Go down through your own understanding of them listen to what the lord is saying in your heart and in your conscience instead of your shame there'll be a double portion instead of dishonor they shall rejoice in their lot therefore in their land they shall possess a double portion they shall have everlasting joy the promise of the lord for all eternity salvation relief and then finally, the praise that comes from the lips of the prophet. By the way, it's a long cry from Isaiah, when, Isaiah 6 when he looks and sees the glory of the Lord and the holiness of God and says, I'm undone. I'm unclean. I live in the midst of a people that are unclean. And he sees and is drawn to repentance and a, a, a purging takes place as the hot coal is placed upon his, his lips. Now listen to the prophet. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with jewels for as the earth brings forth and sprouts in a garden causes what is sown to be sprouted up so the Lord will cause the righteousness will cause righteousness and praise to spread upon all the nations blessed are they who mourn for they shall it's a sweet promise they shall be comforted by the way let me define one word before I'm done the comfort Sometimes we think of comfort in terms of something kind of warm and fuzzy and, and sweet and, you know, maybe just a nice pillow or, or a comfortable spot or place. But the word really has more to it than that. It really has to do with a consortium of strength. That is fortification. And that's really what the comfort of the Lord is. It's not just to make us feel good. We're seeking that in our religion sometimes. But it's to give us that bringing together of all the great attributes and the saving mercies of God and bringing it all together into a strength that accomplishes, that protects, that rewards, that preserves, that keeps us for all eternity. That's the comfort of the gospel.